Hello and welcome to this episode of the Musician's Journey podcast. I'm Ragnhild Wesenberg and today I had the pleasure of geeking out on the cello talk together with Emily Wright, who has many years of experience as a cellist and cello teacher and who I really admire for her hard work and creativity and confident attitude despite challenges of different sorts ranging from physical injuries to seriously nasty YouTube comments. We'll get to that, but first I want to take the opportunity to say that I have opened my online cello course, and if you're curious about that, go to my website, which I link to in the show notes. As a listener of this podcast, you can even get a discount by using the code TMJP at checkout, that's short for the Musician's Journey podcast. You can also give someone a month or more of my course as a Christmas present, in which case please write me an email. Last year I put together a whole advent calendar here with 24 different artists and songs. And it's just too much for me to make a new one this year, but if you want to have some new input of Christmas songs, I'll make the calendar available again for the public. It should be found by scrolling down through the episodes. If you want some new musical input overall, I recommend you check out the playlist on Spotify called The Musician's Journey Podcast. There you'll find music only by artists I've talked with here and the music is extremely varied. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so easily through Ko-fi, which is a platform similar to Patreon. It's linked to in the show notes as well. I'm getting busier as a cellist, which is wonderful, but that means I'll make this podcast more sporadically rather than regularly, just so you know. And that's it. Enjoy the next hour or so with Emily and me. Would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, My name is Emily Wright, and I am a cellist and a cello teacher, um, among other things, here in Connecticut, United States. Yes. I uh, look up to you in uh, many ways from the impression I have of you so far. It looks like you have you have done so many different things already to do with being a cellist, including uh, you've written a book as well. I did. I I wrote a book. Uh, um, Basically, I found that when I was teaching mostly adults, like the first kind of 30 pages of all of the notes that I was kind of giving to everybody kind of had a lot of the same information. I was like, maybe I should put this you know, in a more concrete form, it is actually not in print right now. I did a self-publishing kind of thing. And then that company was sold to another company, which doesn't do the format. And anyway, so I am looking to find another way to publish it. And I have a, another book kind of in the works. So I think when that one's done, maybe I'll force both of them into publication again. I saw because I had the link on your website to the book didn't have any books. Uh, So I guess that's why, I mean, if it's out of print. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's still available as a PDF. And I have to say, um, if you or any of your listeners would like a copy of it as a PDF, uh, you guys can email me. I'll give you my email right now. It's just Emily Wright Cello. So Emily, uh, 
W-R-I-G-H-T cello at gmail.com. Um, and I'm happy to just send you a link to my Google Drive and you guys can download it. I think it's much cooler to have the book in your hands, but mm. um, better than nothing. Yeah. And I was struck by the title of the book, uh, A Modern Cellist's uh, Manual, right? Yeah. To me, I mean, in my head, I, it sounded a little frustrated, like, oh, we need something modern by now. There is a lot of things to do with our profession that feels pretty outdated, doesn't it? Yeah. So all the things that I teach are um, part of it is wonderful things that I learned from my formative teachers. And then other things that I learned from having negative experiences growing up in the kind of classical music world. And I think one of the things that a lot of teachers when I was growing up, so I grew up in the kind of 80s and 90s, I went to college in 1995. It's like a lot of teachers thought that they were teaching the cello as opposed to teaching people to play the cello. And I found that a lot of um a lot of methods present themselves like this is the one way to do it. And if you can't do this, well then you know what, you're probably not cut out for this. And if you have any doubts at all, you're not normal and you just have to be blessed by this, you know, whatever we want to talk about, like you know, natural ability or, you know, any of those things, talent. And um, it's exhausting and also absolutely false. Just, it's just, it is just not the case that that, that is required at all. Mm. I was thinking about that today as I looked at some of your YouTube videos today. And one of them made me think about what you're saying right now, that as a teacher myself, I'm pretty fresh. I've only been teaching for a couple of years. And already I'm struck by how uh, not authoritative I am. As a t- I can't say this is the way to do this and this is the way to do that. And it's really strange to think back at the teachers I've had and they did that. They said, you do this and you do that. And I just swallowed it. I didn't even question it because they had this teacher role And it has a certain authority. So one of your videos, on the one hand, you explain why something could be executed on the cello in a certain way. And then on the other hand, you point out that there are professionals who do it differently. And that's also fine. I mean, you as a teacher yourself, was there a point where you stepped into this role of of like authority? Or how do do you feel about that? Well, I think... People like the longer you study something and in our instance, we're kind of studying teaching, aren't we? Right. Because it's like, it's one thing to be able to play the cello, but it's a whole other thing to be able to talk about learning the cello, especially when every student kind of hits things from slightly different angles. And the thing that gives me the most confidence is that I feel totally comfortable saying, you know, I'm not sure. Or let's try this. And usually I'm pretty successful with let's try this. One of these two things usually works. But sometimes a student comes back and says, no, or I don't understand that, or it hurts my hand, or it gives me anxiety, or, oh, God, but now your intonation has completely gone out of the window. So I think as instructors, as long as it doesn't matter what uh, how much experience you have, If you just sort of 
agree that you are more like a tour guide with your students. And you're like, well, I'm going to light the path here. And when we come upon an obstacle, let's the two of us see if we can't work it out together to get past it. And as long as you're comfortable just admitting that it's all an experiment, I'm not sure if this will work. Um, that tends to give you confidence because you don't know until you know. And then you, it's not like you have to bet your whole reputation on the success of this particular thing. Mm. Do you think that's a modern approach to teaching? I think teachers nowadays are more likely to say those kind of things. Um, but in the United States, maybe it's just because it was so competitive. Growing up, there was a culture of like, you weren't a serious cello student unless you were going to an absolutely terrifying teacher, somebody who would make you cry in lessons, somebody who would rake you over the coals if you did something wrong. And what's funny is my first teacher was not like this. Uh, one of her teachers was William Pleath, Jacqueline Dupre's teacher. Yeah, um, yeah. And he was very warm, right? He just like, just, he's like, what a great thing we get to do every day. I get to teach the cello, which is kind of how I feel. But then I came um, across a couple other teachers that really, um, they let me know that I was not very good. I was not going to be very good, that my level of effort was not very good. And then um, one summer I took lessons and did the studio class with Hans, depending on how you want to say it, Jorgen Jensen, or some people hit the J's hard, Jorgen Jensen out mm -hmm. here. But what was funny is he's a very serious teacher, right? His students are insane. They are so good. And he was so joyful and serious about the technique, but always with like, well, we have to laugh when we fall down and no, 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 you'll get it. It will be fine. Let's just keep going. And he is probably the most formative person in terms of how I I craft the way I am with my students, that I am first a person who is on their side, and then we will be very serious about getting them where they want to be as a cellist. But that doesn't mean I have to have a serious or angry demeanor at all. In fact, I can't, I have, I've been angry maybe three times in lessons ever. And I've been teaching since 1996. Wow. So... Yeah. 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 The thought of being angry in a lesson seems impossible to me. I would lose all my students. Yeah. And I actually, I wasn't even less uh, angry about playing like in the lesson. I had somebody who was like a pathological liar. I had somebody who um, made a pass at me, like was sexually aggressive in a lesson. So I got, I was angry at that. Um, so I had somebody tell me that, uh, my teaching was not worth the money. So those were the three times when I was angry, uh, which I think is like, those were also the end of our lessons. I didn't see those people after that, but yeah, uh, being angry, funny, I can have a bad day. I'm a human. I feel angry sometimes, but lessons are almost always like a real, like, all right, here's something that's going to be good and productive and useful. It's um, like the best possible thing. And I hope that my students feel that same way that they can kind of, no matter what kind of day or what kind of practice they've had, they can kind of feel like they move forward a little bit every time in a lesson. Mm. Uh, one cello specific question I just have to ask you because I haven't actually had many cellists on here. Mm. Uh, so I can't help it. So 
I teach almost exclusively adults at a fairly like beginner level. And something that adults question that I don't think children question, but adults really want to mentally understand and map out the positions on the fingerboard. And every time I get that question, I just feel like I confuse them because, you know, you have the narrow position, you have the extended position. There are so many notes, you know, you play the same notes in different positions. I mean, I haven't found a decent, easy way of explaining that to my students. Have you? I'm sure you have. Well, I'm just trying to think about how is this because they are desperate to play better in tune or because they're struggling with placing the notes on the instrument? Like what, what is the context of their question? Uh, I think it's when they play something, they just really want to know which position they're playing in. Hmm. And if I say, now we're playing in the second position, then maybe that doesn't correspond perfectly with, you know, the last time we played in the second position or maybe it's the same tone as what we did in the third position you know it's confusing right okay so funny story i didn't know <laughs> the the position numbers i knew first and fourth because yes. like right we play a lot in first and then we shift in the g scale and now we're in the fourth position and that and yeah. it's also fourth position's nice because it's like you're up against the side of the instrument you kind of feel but like second and third feel very similar for a lot of folks I didn't even know about the positions until I was, oh, I don't know, towards the end of high school. And I started teaching somebody who was learning from a Suzuki teacher. And of course, that's very position centric, which makes total sense. Um, I don't encounter people who are feverish for the position numbers. But what I usually do is I, I first make sure that they know the genesis of the positions, right? So it's if you play a major scale with just your first finger up the string. Okay, so that's what the names of all of these are. And then usually I look at them and I'm like, do you see why we don't talk about like sixth, seventh, eighth position? Because it's uh, all, it's it's a mess once you get, yes. your thumb has to come up. But then what I will have them do, which kind of solves a lot of the the issues, is I have them name the notes under their fingers going up a string. And so I say, okay, put your first finger on G. Tell me the names of the notes that are under your fingers. And then what would, what would they be if you had an extension there? How about we go over to the G in this position? And so what you start doing is you're giving them a map of the fingerboard, which I think is more useful than knowing a position number. But also I think, I mean, being very cello nerdy here, so if you're not a cellist, I'm sorry for this. <laughs> but just having them do that one finger scale even if it's just up to fifth position, naming the notes and then make it a minor scale just because we're like, oh, here's extended third position. That might be a little different. Um, but most, I think the most important thing is just understanding where the note is on the string as an absolute. That can be played by any finger you like. Um, and then once they get into even the early popper etudes, because, you know, Three quarters of the popper etudes are terrifying. And then there's just like five or six of them, though, that once you're an intermediate cellist, you can do a couple measures of because his whole thing is about here's all the notes you can play in this one position. And now I'm going to throw in one note that's really hard and see if you know what to do when that other note comes up. And I feel like the combination of having them name all these notes in their head away from the instrument, 
where they are on the fingerboard and then play something that is so challenging like the popper or dupour. Actually, there's a couple dupour etudes that are very similar in their specific demands. I think that usually helps, but I love that your students have like such academic questions. Like I like that. I would, I would really be excited to teach somebody that even though it's, um, I'm totally unfamiliar. Most of the students are like, ah, position. <laughs> I don't know. I, they don't even, they don't even care. They actually here, they're obsessed with intonation only. Oh, oh okay. They'll, like people are, they ignore their tone completely and they just become slaves to the tuner. Just, ah, yeah, right. that's, yeah, I get, I call them tuner refugees, people who like forget about the music and just are obsessed with only playing. It's so, it's also funny, right? Because they don't always sound in tune with the tuner, right? Sometimes you need no. certain notes to be higher or lower to sound in tune. Yeah, so. because you want to play in tune with the instrument. Right. right? With Right. The strings are vibrating with each other, and uh, that's something I haven't yet managed to explain to someone, I think. You know, that specific feeling of tuning in to playing in tune with the instrument itself because mm. it's it's really powerful you know uh when you start looking at it like that or hearing it like that but i don't know how i can explain it if i if i am to say to someone playing tune with the instrument it wouldn't wouldn't make sense at all to them maybe possibly but maybe i shouldn't underestimate them either um Usually what I do is I do a little test because there are some people who just do not have an ear for whether something is in tune or not. And for those folks, we have to start from a much more fundamental level. But I find most people respond to a note that is wildly out of tune and they're like, no, 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 I can definitely recognize that's not in tune. So then what I like to do is either on a fourth, a fifth or a unison is I ask them to stop thinking and stop trying to be good at this. But I always describe it as like that moment in the wizard of Oz when it goes from black and white and then it, the, the movies in color. And so I'm like, you can hear um, that when let's say first finger E on the D string against your open a, you can hear when it's out of tune because it makes you want to die. Out of tune fourth is very hard to endure and Bach asks us to play them all the time. So I get to hear lots of out of tune fourths. But then there's a range at which you're like, okay, this is agreeable. This is still agreeable. This is agreeable with a little bit of tension. And then it has become disagreeable again. And just give them one double stop that they sort of love. A lot of people will like a major third, right? F sharp against A. F sharp has its own problems. <laughs> but, um, you know, but just, just getting them to like go slowly in and out of tune mm. because I had a music theory teacher in college and we were learning to recognize like very oblique intervals and very large intervals. Right. So like, you know, a major 17th, you know, and things like that. I'm like, great. I have never used that in my life, by the way, I never, never needed to do that. But I remember when we were working with dissonances and, and learning to recognize them. And she was like, a major seventh to me always feels like a tummy ache. And a tritone to me feels like I'm about to sneeze. And she just had like a series of things. And so she said, tune into your body when you're playing. Because, I mean, we only do intervals in, in music 
to get some sort of emotional impact for the listener. So mm-hmm. you should have emotional impact, right? Like when you're when you're playing certain notes and certain intervals sound a certain way. So I always appreciated that when like my, you know, my major third is very tempered low and it just feels like the bottom has fallen out of a chord and it's like very satisfying and a little bit sinister. I love a major chord that sounds sinister. So yeah, just, I would say find whichever double stop they, um, they relate to and Mm. just really lean in on that one. Mm. So you have been teaching for a long time already. Can you say something about the trajectory that led you to your current combination of income streams? Mm, Absolutely. So for most musicians, um, it's really um, important to, to completely confront the lie that a lot of people have where they're like, you should be able to be either a teacher and you can buy a house on that income or you should be a performer and you should be able to freelance enough or whatever it is or academia or, you know, and I've tried a whole bunch of different things. Um, I tried a bunch of different things for a couple of reasons. I did want to be self-sufficient. Also, I find a lot of things interesting and I just think it's probably good to lead a life where you get to do things you find compelling and interesting. Um, and since a lot of them were within the music field, it has all been really, um, they all inform each other. So, um, even things that seem very far away. So like I worked at a record label for a while. I wrote music for TV for a while. Um, I, you know, I worked at a music store where I learned maybe more about music working at a music store from all of the other employees who played all different kinds of music. Oh, it's just, it was and the customers too, just fascinating, interesting people. Uh, Ruth Underwood, who is the um, uh, mallet player for Frank Zappa used to come in and, and she, she would just talk about music for ages. She would just want to come in and talk about music, just like us, just like, isn't it cool that this is what we do? Just, it, it was just like such a delight that also kind of always gave me a perspective because I would sit down in orchestras in LA and people would be like, Oh, can you believe we have to play Mozart again? And I'm like, uh, I am stoked to play Mozart. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm like, what's uh, wrong with you? Why would be, why would this be a problem? <laughs> like I almost didn't make my rent last, last month. I'm really excited to be here being paid to play some Mozart. Um, so, but I remember, so I was always trying to see if there were things that I could do where I could work a reasonable number of hours and also avoid injury because I've been incredibly injury prone for a lot of my career. Um, I was apparently just born with a bit of a crummy spine is what we're kind of learning. Um, so I was always trying to see like, well, what's the combination of things that allows me to do things that I like, but also allows me to work, you know, not 70 hours a week. And I remember calling my first teacher who I called my cello mama. She was just like, just the most wonderful person. And one of the few people, um, I didn't have a lot of great adults growing up around me. I was raised in a very critical kind of nasty environment. And so I called her and I was like, Kathy, I, I have you know, 25 students I'm playing in the recording studios. I'm, I'm, and I am not just exhausted, but I also don't have enough money to, to live in Los Angeles. Um, it wasn't as expensive as it is now, but still it was, it was still really expensive. Um, and I said, how do you do it? Because she lived the life that I wanted. 
She would, she was a professor at the university there. She coached chamber music. She taught at a super nerdy Baroque thing in the, uh, in Amsterdam every summer. And she just, you know, did all kinds of neat things. And she said, Oh, Emily, Emily, every person who lives my life either comes from money or is married to somebody who can support them. She just said it straight out. <laughs> and I started looking around and I realized that all of it's absolutely true. It is absolutely true. It's a game for rich people and then other people who have like somebody who can kind of have two thirds of the income while we have one third of the income. And once I realized that, I was just sort of like, okay. Okay, so this is, it didn't help me at that time because I'm not going to just go find somebody <laughs> to pay for my life. But I started, I, I felt a lot less guilty about not having, not being able to buy a new car with my teaching income. And so then I started, you know, I realized teaching is what I really, really loved. And especially since as somebody who was injury prone, I didn't feel comfortable joining an orchestra because they really have to be able to count on you. Um, so what I, what I did, um, for the last kind of, I don't know, 10 years that I was in Los Angeles and then the 10 years that I spent in DC, we moved here just a year ago. Um, I was an alternate, which was my favorite thing to do, right? A couple rehearsals in the show when somebody else was out. So I got, I got to keep my chops up, but I didn't have to have that commitment, but I love teaching. And when you teach, you do, you know, your own private studio. And then what you really want though, is like, I want to teach at an institution, right? It gives you some legitimacy also. Right. Cause if you looked at my LinkedIn, it looks like self-employed 30 years. Right? <laughs> it looks like, what have you been doing? Um, and so the reason that I am where I am now is because I have never had an employer that valued me appropriately. Hmm. Never, never once. Um, and so I decided, well, I'm going to start my own thing, which is, uh, the Tamarack Arts kind of, you know, school for adult learners. And I am going to pay my employees well. And I'm going to treat students exactly as I see fit. And I will recruit the right students. I will have complete control over all of it. And even if I don't make a ton of money, I'm doing it exactly as I see fit. And I know, like, I know my value and I know the value of the people who I hire. So mm. that's kind of all a very long answer, but like, that's kind of where, why we ended up where I am now. Yeah. You didn't answer the question you kind of raised to yourself about either having rich parents or a rich spouse. How did you solve that? So um, a slight, almost a combination of the two. So uh, in 2012, part of the problem with my spine um, I ended up having to sell my cello to afford medical treatment. <laughs> United oh, States wow. healthcare. It's yeah. as bad as you say it is. It's so bad. Uh. Um, and so, um, I, I relied on borrowing cellos and I did a small fundraiser that kind of didn't work out. And, and then over the course of a couple years, I ended up, um, there's this actually, I wrote about it in strings. Um, a combination of my partner who has been, he works in startups and he's been successfully um, or successively more and more successful in each of his positions, which by the way, doesn't happen in the music world. You can just be hired as an assistant professor and they'll keep you there for 40 years. <laughs> in 
other aspects, other, other normal businesses, they're like, oh, you've worked here for three years and you've done a good job. You go to the next level, right? Right. So, um, a combination of my dad and my partner, um, and the person who was selling the cello, reducing their price. So they afforded me my, a fine instrument again, which I didn't have for eight years. I was playing on basically a student instrument and nobody, nobody guessed by the way. So don't feel mm. bad. You guys, <laughs> if, if anybody has a $4,000 instrument, like those can sound really good. So, yeah. um, anyway, so I got this and then, um, over time, um, my partner has just said, look, I make enough money for you to not stress out about paying half of the rent or which is how it was when we were first together. We were, you know, paying half and sometimes he'd be low on cash and I would help him out. Um, but over time, he's just said, why don't you do this? I would like to do this. And since um, what I'm doing is falls under the nonprofit kind of tax structure here, I'm not making a ton of money, but we're also not being taxed at all. Um, so it's become something where it's okay if it's not super successful right away. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of that, that's how I ended up being able to survive. But if for some reason his income were to be slashed, I would, I would have to find a day job. Hmm. I would have to find, I have, I have plenty of students, but it's just like, it's not enough to afford how currently expensive life is. Right. Yeah. Got like 12 students right now. I teach them all on zoom. Um, I love it. They're all over, all over the place. We've got like Mexico city and Alaska and Italy. Um, and I like that. I like that for now, but it's yeah. Being right. Exactly. Here is not exactly the most clever if I wanted to actually work as a, as a musician for other people. Right. Yeah. In order to do that, I guess you would have to, you know, do really well on all the online things. Uh, has that been a thought of yours? I know that it's been a thought of mine, especially because of the pandemic, that it would have been really nice to have something online that was successful. I think so. Yeah, we started the program um, online only. And I feel like there's just kind of two camps of people. Someone who's like, I just, I need to be in person. And then there are other people who are, they're like, eh, okay, I'll do it. Or I'm so glad that this is online. Um, especially because I teach adults and I love teaching older adults, like people over 70. A lot of them, um, it's not safe to travel. It's very expensive to travel, especially with a cello, right? Like yeah. violinists, like you can just kind of tuck it under your arm and get on the plane. But for us, right, it's this whole ordeal. Um, so I've actually gotten a whole bunch of older folks saying, thank you for doing this online because I have to care for my partner, right? Who's got Alzheimer's disease or is just too old to like really travel a lot. But now I can have all this like great education brought to me. So I did get a, a bunch of kind of new business, but during COVID, I also had a lot of students drop because their income became very insecure or because they didn't want to be on um, online lessons. They just, you know, old, a lot of older folks. And I understand. I mean, I'm supposed to be a digital native, 
right? Like I, I was kind of the very first computer generation. And now and again, I'm still just like, Zoom is freaking me out. I'm actually, <laughs> I don't love this. Um, so there's that. And I think there were just a lot of people who went inward with the with the pandemic and just didn't feel like reaching out or starting anything new and kind of going into survival mode. I don't know about you, but I feel like in general, people are in a less optimistic place the past couple of years than they were. And I think people like us benefit from an optimistic frame of mind, right? <laughs> I think we can benefit from both, though, because there is something about playing an instrument such as the cello that I think can also make people feel like, ah, this is what I need in my life right now. It's been something. I mean, when things in the world happen, it can also inspire people to do something that they didn't yet do, that they were thinking about for a long time. And then they realize, oh, shit, the world is real. I have to, if I want to play the cello at some point in my life, I mean, why wait even longer? No, I think that that is, that's what I, that is kind of like what the students I get. That is how they are. But I think people on the edge who are kind of nursing it in the back of their mind, um, at least in the United States, right? It's just this, it's become so high risk to be in the United States, like the past kind of five, six years, not to get like extremely political, but like everything is more expensive. Healthcare is insanely expensive. Um, we, right. We have like trade policies with, um, with other countries where it becomes really expensive to even get a crummy instrument. Um, and we've had like shortages and things like that with, with just like, sorry, your rental instrument is on a boat and we don't know when it's going to get here. Um, so yeah, it's just, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe I'm actually like putting my own kind of, I'm not a pessimist, but I'm easily touched. And I'm like, just, I'm gravely concerned, like for world events and for the environment and things like that. And so when I see that kind of coinciding with a drop in interest in these things that I do, maybe I'm attributing a relationship that's not there. <laughs> um, but I do, I have had people say, I really needed something good to happen today. Thank you for a lesson where, <laughs> where I feel like I yeah. put something good into the world. Yeah. And it goes both ways. Uh, last week now, I... I had a cello lesson on the on day one and day two of my menstrual cycle, and that's like the worst time yeah. to have anything planned. So a part of me was um, not very happy about it, but those were the highlights of my day. So Isn't it funny? Yeah, it's I feel so sometimes, funny. <laughs> sometimes like also like early morning lessons when people are like, "Oh, I'm so tired." Sometimes it's great because they've got like no resistance to the information you're giving them. And they're just like in this other place. Yeah, it is funny. Altered states like that. Absolutely. Yeah, for me, it's the it's the week before my cycle. And I'm just like, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I just totally want the it. sofa, home alone, eat a lot and watch a screen. That's right. Exactly. Doom scrolling. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Um, you have mentioned a few times already Tamarack Arts. Do you mm. want to say what that is? So what, let's say what I want it to be, and then we'll talk about kind of where we are in that process. Yeah. yeah. Um, are you familiar with the Aspen Festival out here? Uh, I am not. 
So in Aspen, Colorado, which is in, you know, some of our, it's kind of like the Alps of the United States, just the most beautiful, pointy, snowy, wonderful, and lots of skiing and resorts up there. So it's just absolutely beautiful. Every summer, there's a kind of eight-week-long program, and people can participate for eight weeks or chunks of two weeks. It is for uh, very, very good students and then professionals, and they come for absolutely intensive workshops, rehearsals. They're all put into, excuse me, chamber music groups. You can do a solo performance if you want. It's just incredibly intensive. And I did an interview um, of a bunch of different people who um, are administrators and students and teachers there. And they just all describe it as a place where they go and they, when they, when they leave, they feel like they have been restored And they also feel like they've learned something. And as people who are not teaching a lot, right, a lot of these people are just very, very active performers. It's always nice to feel like, oh, progress is possible. I, or, you know, it's nice to be taught. It's just a very vulnerable and open. Um, I had a lesson a couple of years ago, and I still think about it like every day when I sit down, I think about the things that we discussed. Um, And so I I was just talking about how there's nothing really like that for adult learners, people who are serious about the instrument, but for whatever reason, either got a late start or or started early, but then had to abandon it. Lots of people who got music degrees ended up as computer programmers or, you know, long distance truck drivers. Just it's, you know, you, you make these choices. And so I said, I want there to be something like that for adults, a place that is beautiful, that has an opportunity for them to develop and also belong to a community because Aspen people who are, who know each other through Aspen, like that's how you actually end up having a wonderful network, which as you know, like having a network of people who know and respect you is essential for being a professional musician, right? When somebody says, Oh yeah, I know a cello teacher. Right. And, and you get the call because somebody knows you and can vouch for your skill. So, um, so that's kind of what I want. And I want it to be a place that is beautiful, um, a place that is affordable. That's why we made it a nonprofit um, so that there is no financial barrier to people coming. If they can, if they can get here, like we will make sure that they can afford it by, you know, having people give donations and that's how we pay our faculty. Um, and also to make it very kind of serious in the way that music school is. doesn't mean it's not joyful. But a lot of people who teach only children teach adults like their children. So they're like, oh, that's okay. That's great. And adults are like, no, it wasn't great. I know that this was not great. I have ears, right? You don't have to pat them on the head. But also to kind of retrofit their knowledge, because a lot of adult learners, maybe they know the instrument a lot, but do they know music history? Do they know music theory? Do they know, for instance, I teach people who are in community orchestras and they do not know what this means. They don't know what the beat is. They don't know what any of any of this means. And so teaching them things like conducting or etiquette in a in a section, section playing, ear training. So hmm. that's what we want to do. And we want to do it year round um, in uh, online and then three seasons of the year in person because Connecticut gets really mean snowfall in the winter and it's very, very hilly. So you have to have a, a truck or a four-wheel drive vehicle to get around here in cold weather. So what we did was we started it um, 
just as the pandemic really got into full swing, actually. We put on our first program uh, in August of 2021. Yeah. So this is when people were, um, I think Delta was the the very, right. was just right. like, no, I'm definitely <laughs> not thinking about um, traveling. Um, and so we just did a camp. It's like a four day intensive where there were workshops about technique and music history and private lessons and stuff like that. And so that's where we are now. I'm in talks with a couple people who have properties and they're like, we would like you to be able to use our property, but there's nothing built on it yet. Hmm. So there's, well, does somebody donate to us and we build or do we have to find something else? But this summer, our goal is to have a very small in-person programming, even if it is, you know, at a, a neighborhood church or a synagogue that is, you know, that will let us use it for a little bit. But we really have a, a pretty ambitious goal. I, I want it to be kind of the best in the world for adult learners. Um, and I want it to be a place where they feel in touch with nature and with a community of people who are just like them. And also that the teachers really enjoy being there and that they feel respected by the way I treat them and the way the students interact with them. So that's kind of the the goal. That's beautiful. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I, it sounds like a lot. I um I'm just comparing it to my uh, microscopic version of anything like that, which is also just in the thoughts, which is just I, I want to be able to offer group sessions mm. for adults because there's a lot of interest in it, I've seen, but I haven't even gotten around to finding a venue for it. The venue is really important because I've done great classes in places that looked really sad and it's better than no class, but if you can find something where the the setting is simple and beautiful or where there's some connection to nature, I find that people um, at the end of it, they're already planning when they can come back. Because yeah, I've taught yeah. at a lot of different like festivals mm. and things, and yeah. most of them have been really quite sad in terms of how they look. Yeah, I now I have two groups of adults I teach via... Uh, culture school like it's not my private thing mm. and we're in uh, the classroom of a high school or something so it's it, it, like oh, the atmosphere no one wants to be reminded of those classrooms yes it's horrible the lighting and the everything is the, just the gone. harsh the, lighting from above so harsh, I used I used to have a little carpet in the trunk of my, I drove a Volvo for years. I feel like Volvo is the official cello car. Um, <laughs> but um, I used to have like a little rug and then I would have a candle <laughs> and like I would try to make the room because I would teach in a, my um, my college when I was like kind of just finishing up school there, they would let me use a classroom. And even though it kind of felt cool, like, look, this is very official, right? There's a chalkboard and all of these desks. It was still sort of like, really bummer lighting and the floor and the yeah not great I I used to bring also sometimes I would bring a stand light and so I'd have the room quite dark and then I would have stand lights on instead um and that kind of makes it look like you're in the pit of an opera <laughs> yeah um and also stand lights are beautiful right because it's like who doesn't benefit from having a little bit more light on the notes um yeah. but yeah it's really I I love though because what you're acknowledging, and this is kind of part of like a more, I think, modern take on it, is that we want something that is 
rewarding and cozy and safe feeling for our students and us, right? And the spaces that we inhabit really affect that. Um, and you can have a great experience in a terrible office building with no windows and fluorescent lights. But I just imagine that moment in a place with, you know, wood floors and a bunch of natural light and a nice smell coming from the stove. How could that not be better? That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. I have I, one uh, question for you. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I have a million questions for you, but um, how do you manage cycling with your instrument? Yeah. So, like, where does the cello go? Um, I think it has to do, like, the there must be chemistry between the case and the bike. And I think I'm just lucky there because my cello doesn't touch the... There is this... What's it called when there is a little thing behind the seat where you can... A basket or, a, or like, the... Yeah, like, Something you can sit on there, you know, not all bikes has that. It's like yes, behind yeah, yeah. I don't know what that's called actually, but yeah, yeah, my bike does not have one of those. So actually, if the road is even, if I lean back or straighten my back, then the cello case rests on it. And you wear it just like a, a regular backpack. Yeah, yeah, I do. I have this Fiedler backpack system on the cello case that has a strap over the chest. So it's like a... It's a fairly comfortable, I mean, as comfortable as it gets, I think. But but sometimes I I stop and I get off just to take off my case and shake off a little bit and then I continue. But it it works. I've often yeah. thought about getting one of those, um, the bikes that um, Ikea always has in their advertising where like there's this long thing in the front that you can put, you know, boxes or whatever on because I do not trust myself on, I have a very old, like a Dutch bike that's very heavy, um, but my cello does not agree with it. The one time I did it was, I kind of had the cello across here and I was looking up and over it and um, I got a lot of looks bicycling around Washington, D.C. with my cello kind of across my body. (laughs) Wow. But but yeah, I I always find it really impressive when cellists... Uh, manage to work a bike. I would love to talk a little bit about some of these things that you have experienced. We haven't talked about um, social media and online things. You have a YouTube channel. You have uh, videos in like different styles. You know, you have some where you are in what looks like your home, where you're talking about a certain topic, maybe specifically about triplets and the elegy by Foray. You know, it can mm-hmm. something very cello-specific. And it can also be that you show parts of a lecture that you have given. It can be... You you have an animation with the soundtrack. Like, <laughs> did you did you ever want to, to um, focus on one style? That's a... Know. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So it's funny because... Um, I am interested in a lot of things, but also like I was there when YouTube started. And so we weren't sure what YouTube was even going to be, right? Like we didn't know if it was just like, I'm just going to put my own videos on there (laughs) or what. And then later it turned into something where, you know, we are quote unquote content creators or making your brand or whatever. So what's funny though, is that there is a real pressure to be like, 
be consistent, make sure everybody knows exactly who you are. And I'm somebody who nobody gets to tell me who I am. You Right? Like nobody, if you don't like that I have a whatever on my YouTube, then you're not going to be interested in my style of teaching anyway. Like it's fine. There's lots of other people who are very curated and that's great for them. But it's just, I really feel like um, the past couple of years, one of the benefits of getting older, I'm just about to turn 45 and it's like, I really just don't feel the need to respond to that pressure anymore. Mm. Um, and granted, I do want more people to interact with, um, uh, my style of teaching, not to get, even give me money, but just so people see that there is, there are other ways to be taught and that they're that you don't have to be uh extremely serious and also maybe the main thing in my teaching is vulnerability right like there are some videos where i actually play something and it sounds terrible because i want people to understand that like when you're trying to relax you might not sound great at first which is the point that is the point but yeah the um the the animation was a story of like one of my ex-boyfriends right he put like the toilet drops in japan in his eyes because he thought they were eye drops <laughs> there's there's that one there's a couple other ones with like my student i think like yeah i was thinking maybe i would do that you know make youtube my main thing because the blog numbers were starting to go down but it takes so much time. It takes so much time to create a great video. Um, yes. Have you heard of Elise Myers? No. So she's very popular over here. Um, and she says that she, you know, so she creates for TikTok and it, you know, it goes out onto all of the different platforms. And she says for every minute of content, she spends at least an hour editing. Yeah. And I don't have the desire to spend that kind of time to, to do yeah. it. So um, yeah, my videos now are just one take, right? Just me staring into a camera. Sometimes I'll be demonstrating, but um, yeah, I just kind of said, you know, why, why make this stressful? There's enough to stress about. So I appreciate that you like them because I never know. And every time I hit publish, I'm like, Ooh, maybe, oh. I don't know. <laughs> and then you never look at it again. Um, mostly, although if, uh, I also, I got a lot of mean comments when I was first putting videos. I got, it really? was always dudes, always guys saying, you are not a good cellist. Who do you think what? you are? Are you sure that you had this great teacher? And it was just like, wow. so, um, I stopped publishing videos for a while after I think it was 2013. I had a big gap because just this guy kept coming after me. I got death threats. What? Oh yeah. What? I, I mean, just like for playing the cello mm -hmm. and I was just playing something again it was one of the videos where I said like look here's me playing with my normal amount of tension and here's me just really like letting go and do you see how like it changes and here's kind of how you could practice this and this guy was like uh, I remember this one guy was a student in Mexico and he sent me this long screed with lots of things about my mom and you know eat shit and I'm gonna kill you and you're a terrible cellist get this he, he used his real name and so I found him online and I found he was studying at this university in Mexico and I found his teacher and I sent the teacher all of this and he was like I'll take care of this <laughs> so oh. and I see that guy by the way now and again on internet cello forums I still see him uh. never apologized but he he did stop 
he did stop mm. sending me nasty comments. But yeah, that's the other thing. The more you're on social media, especially as a woman, but even as a guy, like people just want to really, mm. people love watching people getting taken down and they like watching people screw up. Yeah. Um, I've got lots of people who are also lifting me up. So it's not that it's only one way, but you, when somebody says you sound terrible and your technique is rotten, that counts. I don't know why, but it feels a lot heavier than all the people who said, thank you. This was helpful for me. Yeah. Yeah. I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. A few episodes before this one, uh, was, it's not out yet, but it will have been out. So I'm just trying to figure out which tends to talk in right now. <laughs> uh, but, uh, it was with another American musician, Christina Pepper, and she said the same on YouTube. So she's playing the piano <laughs> and people feel like saying shitty things for someone playing them. Yeah, it's it's uh, fascinating. Just it that. really is. It's the most personal attack, but it genuinely is not personal. I just think that person has already had a terrible day just by waking up in their mind, just by being that in that place. So at, years later, I'm able to like think about that and be like, he was just telling me about himself. It was not about me and not everybody's going to receive my message, but um, it doesn't hurt a lot. It still hurts though, like that much. <laughs> it still yeah. hurts a little, but it wrecked my week. Like I had a really bad week after that. So mm. yeah, but it, it is not personal, but it is pervasive. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah. When it's an attack on something that you, you know, it, it comes from the heart Right. I'm being vulnerable. Hey, this yeah. is what it sounds like when you're not perfect. And so for somebody to be to miss to so purposely misunderstand it, that's actually they, they say that like your reoccurring dreams are like kind of they show you a lot about what kind of the things that you struggle with. My reoccurring dreams or nightmare is always about being misunderstood. Always, always about somebody seeing something I've done and then they're like, you think you're better than everybody. And I'm like, no, no, that's not it. And then I wake up and I'm like, oh my God. So uh, either that or I'm playing a cello and then I, I look over at it and the strings are all different, like widths and different lengths. <laughs> or, or there's like a piano key on the fingerboard. And I'm like, what's the doing here? <laughs> Those are the two recurring dreams. I oh, uh, <laughs> did you ever dream that you're on stage in front of a symphony orchestra, there is audience, and the orchestra starts the long, long introduction of the Dvořák Cello Concerto. And as they're playing and playing, and you know that you're the soloist, you realize, I don't know this piece. <laughs> um, I haven't had that particular one. I mean, it's so unfair for the cellist. Like, they basically play a whole symphony before that, like, before the soloist even comes in. I will tell you, though... I played the Rococo variations with an orchestra when I was in London. And um, apparently some editions take the third and fourth movement and they swap them. I didn't yeah. know this. So I had been rehearsing with a guest or uh, with our regular conductor. And then the day of the performance, the guy was flying in from Japan to be the conductor. And he had us had me start a couple movements, but we didn't run through the whole program. And during the performance, 
he went to the the next movement and he started conducting the fourth movement and I was starting the and and I just played louder and louder and the orchestra was kind of playing that movement too and he was like uh. like his edition had it in a totally different place yes. so but for a moment like he and I were looking at each other and what's going on. so but hey I'm curious you have a YouTube video called 2021 Project where you in the beginning of the year you say that oh, this year I'm gonna learn four sonatas, I'm gonna learn modern piece every month. You were goal oriented for mm-hmm. the year to come. Something I'm I never am, but it wouldn't be a bad idea to be a little more goal oriented. I'm just curious, how did that go? So I learned I did play all four sonatas, but I really feel like I only learned three of them. Part of the reason I did it was, well, actually, what what came about is that, so, you know, we all have technique that we're not perfectly comfortable with and or like things that are so like my thumb position, like I've always had issues playing three and then one across the string playing a double stop. Uh, right. Oh, yeah. Third, a big third, right? Just it's uncomfortable yeah. and problematic. And there's a couple of popper etudes where it happens. So I booked a mm-hmm. lesson with Amit Paled, who's the professor over at Peabody. So what's funny is we had this lesson and I was so nervous because his students are amazing. And even though I'm a professional musician, it's just very vulnerable to be like, I don't like this. So he's six five. He's a giant man. He is so incredibly big. And um, I'm not small, but like I, we have size disparity. And I said, so I just, I don't like this fingering. It's either in tune and and painful or out of tune and comfortable. Mm. And he just said, change the fingering. And I was just like, mm. <laughs> right. He's like, oh yeah, that's very uncomfortable for me too. I would just do thumb three. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and so we just talked a little bit about logistics for the rest of the piece and we finished off. And I just remember thinking like, I have permission. I have permission to, if it's in the popper etudes, even though the point is the fingering most of the time, if it is painful for me, I'm going to change the fingering. Mm. And if there's a triple stop that I can't play, I'm going to make it a double stop because, mm. I, and that stopped me from learning so much new music because I just felt like, oh no, I've got, I don't, I was just really in my head about the kind of cellist I was. Um, and so people, you know, say, oh, do you just teach? I'm like, <laughs> just, just. But, um, and so I said, you know, what? I loved the experience of feeling like I was learning. And that just sort of gave me permission. Why don't you go through and play some ambitious repertoire? Why don't you shore up all these things that you weren't taught? Because every teacher misses some stuff, right? They, yeah. Right? And so I just went ahead and I learned a bunch of stuff. I fell absolutely in love with the Britain, with the mm. Britain solo suites, like... It just so, so good. And it challenged me, challenged me so much. And I've got a totally wild interpretation and it's mine. And I'm not going to change it just because like I see people playing it otherwise, because that's already been played that way. So, um, yeah, I, I got through that. I learned, I listened to a lot more modern music and I was trying to listen to music by women, especially just like, I can't remember the last time I played a, a, a composition by a woman that was in like a, a performance, a concert. Anyway, so I just, um, I really appreciated having those goals. And then as I fell short, like I didn't finish my learning of the Isai Sonata, 
I can stagger through it, but it's definitely me still reading the notes. But I'm like, I did almost all of this other stuff. And what I find is that if I take the time to play etudes or solo repertoire, then I feel so much more, I don't know if empowered is the right word, but then I just feel I'm approaching everything else I'm doing with confidence. It, I'm, yeah. I'm a, a much better teacher or a more confident teacher and just anything else really if I feel good with my instrument. Do you have uh, something you're working on as a soloist, let's say, you know, your personal cello practice? Is there something that you're dreaming of doing? So I would love to, in the end, I really love playing in string quartets and I also love playing with like collaborative pianists and really like over a long period of time, just I would love to develop a relationship with somebody where we kind of explore new music. But the thing I'm working on, I know it sounds really um, very low, low bar, but I'm actually working on Spiegel and Spiegel <gasps> yeah, because it is so simple, but it is not easy. No, And I'm trying not. to work on pacing my vibrato and not doing things like automatically swelling a note to try to make it more interesting and to try to like let it be very like peaceful and still, which I'm sure you can tell I'm like an energetic person. I've got like lots of stuff to say and like the whole point, right? It's just that it's got to be like, let the music talk. But yeah, um, that's kind of what I've got cooking. What about you? What is um, What are you working on right now in your I'm, private practice? I'm actually making a like a video diary of what I'm working on nice. so I call it my Schnittke diary because I'm revisiting my favorite piece which is Schnittke's second concerto you might have to teach that to me I have never studied it no I I don't think many people have studied it at all and uh, now because this this dream of actually performing it with an orchestra won't let go of me like usually dreams kind of uh they drop you know but this has it's just there so now I'm doing an intensive revisiting of it making this video documentation a little bit about it and the plan is to get it in shape so that by Christmas I will have asked a um, very acclaimed Swedish cellist for a lesson on it like that was you know it's a it's a project with a goal yeah uh so i will be very happy if i feel i succeeded in that and it's it's become a really beautiful project but i was never nerdy i was always horrible at research and stuff uh so now i'm actually doing a little bit of research um the original score that schnittke wrote with his hand is in the, the or there is a copy of it in the Schnitke archive in London. Oh, and nice. I I hadn't seen it before at all. I just have my edition, which is a Sikorsky edition, and I I could hear from recordings of the piece that there are some misprints in the score. Ooh. Up until now, I've just been guessing at what they are, and I've been kind of happy with that. But now I'm not happy with that. Now I would like to know. So I wrote them and they sent me a PDF. Of like so the, generous have, of them. That's, that's very so cool. so generous, yes. They scanned Schnitke's own handwritten 
copy of the cello part for this concerto. It's it's nice to to acknowledge that oh there is this piece that is special to me and and a part of me feels like I should have grown out of that by now. Isn't that just what we do when we are thirteen and we're dreaming about the Dvořák or something? You know, <laughs> as we get older, we either become more who we are or we take on the weight of what like our prevailing culture thinks we should be and i think that that's um it's especially evident when people are making art right how could it ever be bad to have something that you love hmm. <laughs> that, yeah. that that could not possibly be something bad for an artist and for um a researcher right to look at something affectionately like that i think is you're going to do the best work. Hmm. It's been fun. Yes. It's the first time I had someone on for this long. And you also have a podcast. Oh, yeah. The Lonely Cello podcast. I called it Lonely Cello because it can be very isolating to be a musician, especially if you're studying on your own or you don't have um, a lot of connection with the music community. And I just wanted to give people a sense that like, we're we're kind of all in this together and that there's a lot of commonality, common experiences. And even though there are nasty people on the internet, if you look in the right place, you will find a lot of people who are cheering you on. Mm. And that's the yeah. place you should find and stay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there are lots of places people can follow what you're doing. There is YouTube, there is your podcast, you have a website and you're on Instagram. You're making t-shirts as well. Oh yeah, I have a shop. Um, <laughs> it's funny, it just started because I wanted to make a shirt that had like Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's head. And so that was actually the cheapest way to do it was just to like make a shop. And then I would just order it for myself is how it started. Oh, and then really? my friends started making requests. So my friends like, would you do Shostakovich? Would you do Mahler? Would you do one like this? And so I just started doing a whole bunch of them. Um, it's just kind of a joy to have those things out there. Every now and again yeah. um, on on the internet, I'll see somebody wearing one of my shirts, and it will be very weird. <laughs> uh, the one that that caught my interest was the T-shirt with the print. No, it's not a guitar. And uh, whoever you are who's listening to this, I think both me and Emily are very happy to receive a comment if any in this conversation made you think about anything at all you can just post a comment on say emily's instagram or uh, this uh, podcast even is an instagram although i am terrible at being active there but i at least try to make a post for every episode <laughs> so if you have a question about this you can feel free to to leave it there Okay. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. What's the piece you're dreaming of playing? Let us know on Instagram or Facebook or even on my website. It's possible to leave comments under specific podcast episodes there as well. I'm happy you're here. Take care.